The Old Testament reading is from Job 1. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thank you, Midge. Well, this is the last sermon in our series, Resident Aliens, The Church in Exile. And I hope you've enjoyed um, our series in First Peter. And uh, we have tried to walk through uh, a little bit of Scripture's admonition to Christians living at a time when the world and our community and our surroundings and our nation seem very strange. And so our final sermon this morning is Tools for Christian Resistance. 1 Peter 5, 7 through 14. So let's read, starting in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him... Because he cares for you, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered, A little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Father, we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to guide us through this text this morning. I pray now, O God, that you would focus us from all distractions and help our hearts this very moment to focus and be attentive to your word. There's so many things that wait for us. The minute we walk out the doors today, shopping lists and bills and work weeks that await us tomorrow. But Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts with the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit that we may Know your truth and be transformed by it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, resistance movements have been around for a long time, but none has had more of a sort of lasting legacy in the modern world or been more iconic than the American Revolution. You may not think of the American Revolution as a 
resistance movement, but essentially, if you look up resistance movements, it's sort of the, the template, the, the, the first sort of modern resistance movement in our, the Western world. And it was a time when average people in the American colonies rose up to resist the repressive policies of the British crown. The issue that sparked the movement was taxation without representation. Essentially, Americans were being taxed without being represented in the British Parliament. And there have been many resistance movements since then. The Civil War was a resistance movement. You're already appreciating that a resistance movement can be on either side of the ideological or political spectrum. And it grew out of the southern states wanting to abolish federal laws, interfering with their right to keep slaves. They rebelled against the federal government. It lasted four years, the Civil War, and resulted in the deaths of 750,000 people. Women's suffrage is another one. It was a movement to resist the US government's laws forbidding women to vote. The Civil Rights Movement was a resistance movement against racial oppression and inequality. And there have been many others since then. And as I said, the concept spans the political spectrum. Depending on where your vantage point is, uh, there are people, uh, resistance movements can be on both sides of the political aisle. And we don't often think of Christianity as a resistance movement. But it is, maybe not in the popular sense that we think of, but it is. It's not partisan or political, although people have tried to co-opt the Christian movement for political and ideological aims. And to be fair, there are times when the commands of Scripture, the truths of the gospel do line up with certain political ideas, but primarily it is not a political movement. It is primarily spiritual with implications for all of life. And so the primary object of resistance is not governments or political movements, but the devil himself. We can move on now from that slide, Larry, thank you. And this is a sober rebuke to modern people like us because we don't like to think about the devil much. That famous line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. Satan couldn't ask for a better cover than the illusion that he's not real. And it's no coincidence that the horrors of World War II came on the heels of the 20s and 30s when popular belief in the devil, especially in the academy, had started to wane or all but disappeared. And sadly, it took these horrors and many horrors since to remind us that the devil is not a metaphor. He's not a symbol. The devil is a malevolent personal entity. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came to expose the works of the devil. That's what he came to do. That Old Testament picture of Satan 
that Midge just read from the book of Job illustrates what the devil is all about. There he is, a shadowy figure, appearing before God's heavenly council to accuse one of God's trophies, faithful Job. Satan's motivation then and now is to discredit and destroy God's works. He always comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That was not a commentary on the devil's similarity to weather patterns. It was a declaration that the kingdom of God came to directly challenge the devil's authority. And with the cross in view, Jesus spoke of his triumph over Satan, and he said, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And so in many ways, the fact that Satan has been cast out of heaven and knows that his time is short makes him, in many ways, a more formidable adversary because his fury against the Lord and his kingdom is more intense. So what's the danger for us as Christians? Should we be afraid of the devil? Should we see the devil in every mishap? Now, I grew up a Pentecostal, and in the Pentecostal world, at least my own experience, I don't want to say this is true for all Pentecostals, but the devil was in everything that went wrong, including speeding tickets. I remember my mom blowing through a stop sign in California, and the officer pulled her over. And I remember she came home with a ticket, and she said, it was just the devil. Mom, it might have been the fact that you blew through. A, if you're not from California, you don't realize there's something called a California stop. It just means you don't stop. You slow down, and you just keep going. <clears throat> but the devil, when I was, a, my background, Pentecostal, the devil was around every corner, if, you know, if you, if you slice your finger on a, on a sharp knife in the kitchen, it was the devil. Perhaps the devil is somewhere crying because he's been blamed for things that he's not really guilty of. He feels bad for himself. But the devil is real. We don't have to fear the devil, but we should be mindful of the fact that God has equipped us to resist the devil. That famous passage from Ephesians 6 take the whole armor of God, right? And it goes through a list of the different components of the armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to what? Withstand all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So the danger for Christians is not that we're helpless before the devil, but that we may fail to resist him. We're not helpless against the devil. But we are commanded to resist him. And our topic this morning is tools for Christian resistance. 
the dangers that will fail to take up spiritual warfare against the devil. And Peter, who wrote this letter, knew something of personal attacks by Satan, didn't he? Some 30 years earlier, a generation earlier when he was just a young man. Now when he writes 1 Peter, he's an old guy. But a generation earlier when he was maybe in his late 20s, mid-30s, he was with Jesus and Jesus said these jarring words that radically changed Peter's theology from Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you because he wants to sift you like wheat. Now, some of you may not know what a sifter is. When I grew up, we had this little aluminum thing, and you put flour in it, and you turned it, and it sifted it, just ground it to powder, you know, and you could just blow it away. And Jesus says, the devil wants to sift you like wheat. I would imagine that would have come as a great surprise to Peter. I would imagine he was probably thinking to himself, me? Who am I? That the devil wants to sift me? He demands to have me? Right? But Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers, and that is exactly what this passage is about. Peter wants to strengthen us through what he's about to tell us. And look at what he says. Let's revisit our verse this morning. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, whose adversary? Yours and mine, all of ours. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Are you resisting the devil? Maybe you don't think of your life that way. Maybe you don't come to the end of the week and say, did I resist the devil this week? It's probably not how us modern people think. We often don't even think that the devil has any quarrel with us. There are no doubt many ways to resist the devil, and as my pastor used to say growing up, the devil has a candy bar for everyone. Yours may not be Snickers or Hershey or Three Musketeers or my personal favorite when I was a kid, whatchamacallit, but you've got one that tempts you, a candy bar, and the devil knows it. So how do we resist the devil? Well, whenever there's a statement like this in Scripture, we should always look at what comes before immediately and what comes after a statement like this. And just before this, Peter makes this statement. He says, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the first thing we ought to recognize when we think about how to resist the devil is resist the temptation to be anxious. There's that statement in verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I know you were probably expecting something far more sensational than that. Right? We're going to do battle with Satan. How? I'm going to cast all of my anxieties on the Lord. Really? That's how you resist the devil? I listen, uh, the devil does not pop up with horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. He gets at us through the things in life that erode our soul, 
And we live in an anxious age, don't we? Boy, we live in an anxious age. What does it mean to cast your anxieties on the Lord, to resist the temptation to be anxious? I don't think it's talking about, you know, stiff upper lipping it or sort of sheer force of will, but the daily act of surrendering your anxieties and giving them to God. We may not think of that as resisting the devil, but it is. Why? Because anxiety directly interferes with our ability to trust God. Isn't it hard to trust God when you're anxious about something? Doesn't it feel like it pulls against and fights against your ability to be at rest in your heart because you're fully trusting in God's love and provision for you? That's what anxiety does. And when you're anxious, you're more susceptible to sinning. It's true. Because anxious people, anxiety-ridden people, make bad decisions. Anxiety and worry can make you sick. You can be sick with anxiety. I, I've already shared a little bit about in my late 30s, I started having anxiety attacks, panic attacks. And they manifested, manifested itself in all kinds of ways. I don't know if it was a midlife sort of thing, but it just sort of emerged out of nowhere and it lasted for several years and I've managed to get it under control, but it, it fe I feels like it's, it's sort of always there, you know, lying and crouching at the door. Anxiety and worry erode your trust in God's goodness. And this is why Paul the Apostle makes this statement. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Very practical statement from Scripture. It's not highly theological, is it? It just says, look, fight against anxiety. Resist the temptation to give in to it. Don't be anxious about anything, but give it to God in prayer. In other words, take every single anxiety-inducing thing in your life to God in prayer. I mean, I can only think of the way, even right now, COVID has got so many of us anxious, and rightly so. People die of COVID. But at, there comes a point where after you've done everything you know how to do, you have to give it to God. After you've protected yourself and your neighbors and all of the different things that you're supposed to do, you should do, you feel convicted to do, at some point, you have to cast your anxieties upon the Lord. You cannot control every speck or molecule of germs and bacteria coming into your life. I mean, that's just what it means to be alive in the world. That's one way. Another way that we're anxious is usually financial, right? How, how are we anxious, we, us here today? How are we, how do we give in to anxiety? Well, the more educated and affluent you are, the more anxious you are about the future because you plan, you have more control over your life, you have a long-term anxiety. In fact, it's, I've said this before in the past, that uh, the suicide rate is highest among 
educated, affluent people. Suicide rate is much higher. There is an anxiety about the desire to control every facet and aspect of your life and finances. And you know, when the stock market crashed in 1929, it wasn't the poor people jumping out of windows. It was the rich people, because they'd lost everything. The poor people didn't have anything to begin with. Nothing to be sad over. You know, their condition didn't change much. But the barons and titans of industry, their whole world fell apart. They were the ones jumping out of windows. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you, whatever those may be. Whether it's big or little, listen, nothing is too small or big for God. Take every single anxiety before the Lord is what Paul is saying. In the morning, when you get up, when you're driving down the road, when you're walking down the street, waiting in line at the market, as you lie down at night, just take it to the Lord. Well, what do you mean, Jordan, take it to the Lord? What do you mean, take it to the Lord? Father, save my children. Lord, provide all of my needs according to your riches and glory. And the list goes on and on and on. And for each one of you, it may be different. But every time you resist the temptation to let anxiety rule you, you are resisting the devil. This is what Peter has in mind. Should some people be anxious? Absolutely. Should Christians? Absolutely not. The world says, this is how you handle anxiety. Meditate. And I want to say, they're half right. Scripture tells us, meditate on God. Meditate on God, his sovereignty, his promises, his goodness, his faithfulness. Meditate on him. That's what we look to. Meditation is great. Sometimes I sit in the lotus position and I pray. I rehearse the Ten Commandments. I remind myself that God loves me. I try to have my heart rest fully in God's love. I'm not always good at it. So number one, cast your anxieties on the Lord for he cares for you. But secondly, practice vigilance. This is the second thing that Peter tells us to do to resist the devil. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What does it mean to be sober-minded and watchful? Spiritual alertness. Why do you have to be spiritually alert? Well, because a lot of the time, things that seem harmless can have a foothold, take foothold in your life and be an opportunity for Satan. Things that you use to cope. And I don't need to sort of demonize the things. We all do different things to cope. Maybe it's television or social media or a nightcap or a sleeping pill. I don't, whatever we do. Anything can be a foothold for Satan. And it requires spiritual alertness in every area of your life. To be vigilant, sober-minded, and watchful. And when we're not vigilant and spiritually alert, bad things happen. I think of those nature shows. And we all love those nature shows, don't we? And we don't like to admit it, but... You know, if you're watching a program on a 
a jaguar, you're just waiting for the moment, you know, he catches his prey. And we've all seen those shows, right? There's like a Nile crocodile or an African lion that catches an unsuspecting gazelle or wildebeest who got a little too comfortable with their surroundings. They took their eyes off the horizon for a moment. They were grazing in the savanna or drinking water from a river. And for one second, their alertness wavered, and bam, they became lunch. The devil, Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What an image. It's a frightening image. It's chilling. Now, the devil doesn't have the power to destroy us, but he can ensnare us if we're not careful. And when I say destroy, I mean ultimately if we belong to God. But he can destroy your life if you give in to him, if you allow him to ensnare you, if you're not careful. And many Christians have been ensnared. The challenge for us in the modern world is that so many who have been ensnared have been exposed. And our challenge, of course, you know, it happens all the time. When Christians are not vigilant and alert, or they allow the devil to lull them to sleep and think that there is nothing to engage in spiritual warfare about, there is nothing to defend, everything is just great. I want to say, yes, it's true that God's love should give us a peace that our lives are secure and safe in his hands, but at the same time, we are commanded to be vigilant, sober, alert. How did I get here? Is a common refrain from someone who has fallen to some grievous sin, or their marriage has fallen apart, or their lives have been so wrapped up and taken up in something that you know, is so against their Christian faith, and they say, how did I get here? And the devil says, I know how you got here. You thought that little thing would stay little. That little sin, that little addiction, you thought it would stay little. That little vice, that little neglected relationship. So how do we stay spiritually alert? Well, by taking advantage of the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Some people have never heard that before. Well, God has given us means to communicate his grace to us. Acts 2.42 is a perfect picture into that. The early church, they continued regularly in fellowship, in the word, in prayer, and in the breaking of bread. And we do that here at least every Sunday. This is why church attendance is so important. It's not the only thing, but when we come together as the people of God, there is a strength that you leave church service with that is an invisible grace from the word being preached, washing over you, from the fellowship of seeing your brother and sister and saying hello and talking to them for a moment, the fellowship we have together, the unified corporate prayer together, and the breaking of bread, which has become our communion meal every Lord's Day. Now, that's not the only thing, but I want to say this is the primary means of grace. We ought not to dismiss church attendance as something we can take or leave. It's important for us. Do you want to know what my job as the pastor is, as a pastor of a church? It's to help you be attentive to God. That's it. 
My job as a pastor is to help you be attentive to God. Do you want to know why? Because our lives, the daily hustle and bustle of our lives erode that. It erodes our attentiveness to God. So should we fear the devil? No. But we should resist him. And we should be spiritually alert. So cast your anxieties on the Lord. Practice spiritual alertness. And third, be firm in faith. Look at what it says. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What does it mean to be firm in your faith? Does it mean your faith never falters? Does it mean you never have weak faith? No. Does it mean you never doubt God? Not at all. Does it mean your faith is always strong? It means that as your faith move up and down that sliding scale from strong to weak and back and forth, back and forth like our lives and our faith usually does, you never stop trusting in God's promises. You may doubt them from time to time. And your trust may be fledgling. But it means that you never stop trusting in God's promises because you know that suffering is not the final word. In other words, the devil works through suffering to cause us to doubt and to give up our faith. But look at what Peter's promise is, God's promise, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, how many of you, you know this verse? You've heard this verse. Maybe you've comforted yourself with this verse, and rightly so. After you've suffered a little while, not a long while, not a long time, not an eternity, a little while, the God of all grace, himself personally, who has called you to his eternal glory, see the word eternal there? Your suffering is a little while, but the glory of God that God has called you to is eternal. Your trials last for a moment, but the grace, love, and glory of God is for all of eternity. You have to have perspective to be able to endure. To be able to resist the devil, you have to have some perspective. And that means that my suffering at this very moment, it feels intense, it feels fierce. It's just for a moment in the grand scheme of things. Hallelujah. Because the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what happened to Job. Who knows how long Job sat in that place of anguish, of pain, he questioned God, and rightly so. Didn't give up his faith. In fact, the book of Job is part of the Bible's wisdom literature. And there are three books in the Old Testament of wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is the law of reciprocity. Do these good things, and more than likely, these good things will happen to you. But Job and Ecclesiastes are all about when you've done the right things and good things don't happen. 
See, we read Proverbs and it feels good, and generally those things are true, but they're not promises from God. They're generally true. Raise up your children the way that they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it, likely. We know that that is not an absolute statement. Proverbs is collected wisdom, general statements of things that are generally true, but Job and Ecclesiastes say, when you've done everything you're supposed to do and life still falls apart. Here's a portrait, a man named Job. Did he complain? Yes. Did he get angry at God sometimes? Sure. Read Job. It's beautiful. Did he question God? You betcha. But he never lost his faith. The one that loses their faith stopped questioning God altogether. They don't even believe there's anyone on the other side of the, on the other end of the telephone. But wrestling with God, that is a sign of faith. That you believe that there is someone there, an all-powerful being, who could have made things different. And that's the nature of your grievance. And we take our anxieties, our cares, our grievances to God. And it may take years to work through those things. I would imagine it took Job years. It doesn't tell us how long he wrestled and counseled with his friends. But the one he was arguing with and pleading his case with was God himself. And he knew and believed that God was there all along. He just disagreed with God's management style for a while. And in the end, he saw things clearly. He didn't lose his faith. In the end, God restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established Job. I don't know that he ever stopped mourning the loss of his children. Maybe he built memorials to them. I can only imagine he did. And some of you need to build a memorial to something that was lost. Even though God is faithful and you don't understand why God allowed you to lose it. Or God allowed that thing to be broken and it's still not fixed. Build a memorial. God is faithful. I want to close this with Peter's final words. After he has said everything he said, First Peter 5, 12, I don't have a slide for it, but by, he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, he had someone he dictated his words to, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son, greet one another with the kiss of love. We are the people of God and we are in this together. Our tendency is to isolate and pull away from each other. But we need one another. I need you. You need me. We need each other. And the word to us from this series, from 1 Peter, is that the people of God, God has called to strengthen the people of God. Are you resisting the devil? 
Maybe you can't do it alone. Maybe you need someone, you need to share with someone your struggles. To get out of your comfort zone. To connect to someone in a way that does not feel natural for you. God calls us to one another in love and fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the grace that Peter speaks of. The message from his letter to the exiles, the Christian exiles scattered throughout the world who can often feel like the world is against us, but you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us one another. You've given us the truth of the gospel and your grace and eternal glory that will restore and strengthen us and confirm us in the faith. Strengthen our faith, O God, that we might be firm against the devil who desires to destroy us and sift us and weaken us. We need your strength. We can't do it alone, O oh God. Let it be done through the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.